This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Last Friday, the widely esteemed evangelical theologian J.I. Packer died at age 93. As a young man, the future English Christian thinker and leader was educated at Oxford, where he heard lectures from C.S. Lewis, though the two were never personally acquainted. Over the course of his ministry, he moved from the UK to Canada and served at various times as pastor, professor, author, and speaker. Despite the fact he never lived in the United States, Packer greatly influenced American evangelicals. One key way this transpired occurred through Packer's longstanding relationship with Christianity Today. He wrote a lengthy article on the opportunity and challenges for evangelicalism in one of its first issues in 1958. This was as he was publishing his landmark book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God. After the publication of his best-known work, Knowing God, he became contributing editor at Christianity Today in 1983 and then senior editor in 1985. He continued to serve the magazine in similar roles for the next three decades. In 1992, he wrote about how he envisioned his relationship with the publication. One role of CT, which is Features, News, and Thought Journal anchored in the historic faith, is to keep you posted one way and another on the theological front. I suppose I should see myself as a kind of point person for this purpose. But most of all, I want to be a plumber and sewage man, as I said when I started. And most of all, I want CT always to be showing how head and heart should be joining in mature discipleship today. Head without heart journals and heart without head journals make for misshapen and underdeveloped Christians. It is important that we should find and follow the better way. So for a robust 360 view of Packer's legacy and work, we've published a variety of tributes from theologians, pastors, and church leaders whose ministries were inspired and touched by his life. And we've also compiled some of his best and most well-regarded pieces for CT. Those are on our website, obviously, right now, but we're also going to stick a link to them in our show notes. So feel free to visit those links if you are so interested. We specifically wanted to focus on Packer's ministry here and how it affected the evangelical movement at large. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I am Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. Ted, I was actually still out of town when Packer died last week, but let's do a gut check about how you took the news and how you're kind of weighing his legacy. I, you know, it was... It was sad to hear the news but it was it was a, a joyful celebration and so i telling a number of stories kind of around our our dinner table when i when i heard you know then i'm obviously hopped online to go work on our tributes you've heard me enough morgan quoting packer not just theologically but you know packer had a great way of just kind of crystallizing ct's mission and vision we talk a lot here about billy graham and his his initial vision for for christianity today but in a lot of ways jack packer was you know more involved directly in a lot of the content and a lot of his phrasing for what christianity today is about is you know heavily we used around here. I remember this one phrase, this uh, the term that he used for Christianity as information and formation, but the information that CT gives to people, the information should be formative 
And the formative material that we do, whether it's straight theology or, or devotional material, or that it should be full of uh, well-researched and thoughtful information as well, that it's not just opinion, but that we uh, double-check. I remember my, my old boss here, David Neff, wrote a piece once on, on J.I. Packer as journalist. You know, he was known you know, very much as theologian. It was kind of journalistic theology that he was able to do through CT, and that he called us to doing. And, and I honestly think about Packer's vision for CT probably every day at work. He'd been in declining health over the last few years, and so it wasn't like a tremendous surprise. The word blessed probably is overused right now, but I was particularly blessed in his passing and, and remembering how influential he's been on, on my working career here. But how about you, Morgan? Ted, I'm glad that you clarified who said those words about information and formation, because I think I would have been tempted to credit you with the person who said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm always, that's always in quotes every time I say it. Always, I know, but I would have been like, oh, my coworker Ted Olson was paraphrasing someone, but he would always say that, you know, anyway. Right, exactly. So that's actually cool to hear you kind of link some of that. My tenure at CT is getting a little bit long these days, but has it was considerably shorter than yours. And so it actually overlapped with far less years, me and Packer. I think he was giving his feedback about the publication up until the last couple of years. Don't have quite the relationship that you mentioned there. And I would say also, I don't necessarily have the familiarity with his work either. This is a really great time at the publication because we have now all of our archives from the past couple decades online, but that was relatively new. So I guess I just could have hung out in the basement longer (laughs) to find those issues. I am not as familiar with his work or the contributions he made to the movement. So this is actually going to be a very informational podcast for me today. All right, who's our guest? Our guest is the best person for this topic. Timothy George is the founding dean of Beeson Divinity School, the role he served from 1988 until last year. He is now a distinguished professor at Beeson. He has published many books on theology and church history, including he is the general editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, which I have many editions of here in right next to my desk here. And his most recent commentary on Galatians will be published in November. That is separate from the Reformation commentary. But one of the main reasons we are eager to talk with him today is Dr. George also served for many years as executive editor of Christianity Today, along with Dr. Packer. So thank you for coming back to Christianity Today for this podcast. Honored to do so, Ted. It's my belief, Timothy, that one of the best ways to get a sense of someone's legacy is often to get a sense of where the movement that they were a part of was before they came in and then what it looked like after they left it. From a doctrine point of view, I'm curious how the evangelical movement changed as a result of Packer's ministry, writings, teaching, and so forth. The first thing to say is that Jim was a British Christian. And his whole orientation was in England. He was an ordained minister in the Church of England. And I think his first book was published in 1954 or so, around the time of the Billy Graham crusade. Up until that point, you wouldn't say that evangelicalism in North America was completely isolationist. I mean, there were lots of points of contact. And the great evangelists of the past, like D.L. Moody and others, had been transatlantic figures. But Jim Packer was one of the first people who really brought an orientation from outside the USA and Canada, too, to evangelicalism. It, It broadened it. It deepened it. It gave it different horizons and also brought different controversies with it. So I would say that was one of the biggest changes, and the fact that he was an Anglican. Now, of course, he wasn't the first Anglican evangelical. He stood in a long tradition, but he was one of the first to incarnate that in our 
presence in our company and to make it a palpable reality for so many people. And so those are two things. It broadened and deepened evangelicalism and began, uh, you might say, the internationalization of evangelicalism. So obviously the Anglican part is key. To what extent did Anglicanism or his Anglicanism in particular shake things up? Jim is an evangelical Anglican, and so that brings its own set of issues and even controversies with it. One of the early issues that was controversial in Jim's life, I think less so later on, was the Keswick movement. Been sort of burned, you might say, by exposure to some people in the Keswick movement and said some very critical things about it. And so the whole question of the holiness movement and how that interfaces with the rest of evangelicalism, that was in some ways an an import uh, through Jim from a controversy in England. Evangelicalism already in the United States in the mid-1950s and 60s was broadening to include different streams. And Jim represented a very distinctive one. One of those flashpoints, I guess, there were a number of intra-evangelical tensions at the time. You know, you mentioned Billy Graham being in the UK, and that seems to have ignited at least some discussion over biblical authority. That was one of the diverging areas between some of the Church of England folks, the liberal end of the Church of England and, and the more evangelical end of the Church of England. And then so Packer had this book, Fundamentalism in the Word of God, comes out in, in 58. How influential is that in kind of both British and American understanding of talking about the authority of scripture. I, I, I see that it's referenced all the time in these early issues of, of, of CT. And Carl Henry, founding editor of CT, has not yet published all of his pieces on biblical inerrancy and, and authority. Where does Packer's approach to biblical authority and inerrancy kind of fit into the picture? A part of the resurgence of evangelicalism in Great Britain, Anglican evangelicalism especially, related to John Stott, who was a senior figure to Packer, believe it or not, and at one time actually invited Packer to join his staff at All Packer declined or couldn't do so for other reasons, but they remained very good friends, though very different personalities. Packer was a scholar, a teacher, a professor. Stott was a pastor, a preacher. But both of them were ardent advocates and supporters of a very high view of Scripture. And so the book you mentioned, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, was an articulate, not a very long book, a short book, but a very deep and incisive book defending, arguing for, giving a case for a high view of Scripture. Uh, what became known in more in North America, I think, than in, in Great Britain at the time is the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy has its own history, and C.T. is involved with that in some ways later on. But Jim was defending what he preferred to call the total truthfulness of Holy Scripture, that the Bible was the Word of God and that where the Bible spoke, it spoke truth and not error. And he defended that very clearly and carefully, uh, somewhat controversially, not only within the Church of England, but even within wider evangelicalism, especially later on. John Stott, whom I mentioned a moment ago, once said, evangelicals are gospel people and Bible people. That's a wonderful definition. In fact, you could almost say that's a definition of a Christian, that we are gospel people and Bible people. But evangelicals had a very particular take on that, the authority of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that, as Packer said in one of the, his many, many books, God has spoken. What God said in the Holy Scriptures, God really said, and he says to us, the Bible is trustworthy. It can guide our life. It can form our convictions. It ought to undergird our, our churches. That was the view that Packer was defending. 
I've been reading this 1958 piece that he wrote, and you know he does talk about gospel people, but you know there's this idea that idea of gospel people and Bible people comes out. He he has this interesting thing where he's clearly is going after one person's approach. This is the person he wrote his book against, Gabriel Hebert, I guess is how you pronounce it, who wrote Fundamentalism and the Church and the Church of God. So you can see that his writing fundamentalism and the word of God is kind of a direct response to that. And it's interesting in this piece how he kind of criticizes a lot of Hebert's argument as silly. In fact, having I've been on I've been on the other side of some of those criticisms of certain conversations as silly with Dr. Packer. But then he he does this interesting judo move where he actually grants a lot of Hebert's criticisms of evangelicalism at the time and, and in some ways these are still issues now where he you know he says Evangelicals have thought and spoken as if the essence of evangelicalism was maintaining a distinctive exegetical tradition rather than actually taking the Bible seriously itself. I thought that was just an, a really interesting take where he says, you know, there are a number of exegetical methods available to evangelicals, but the authority in our understanding of, of what Scripture is is what unites us as evangelicals. I thought that was that was interesting and something that clearly a lot of American evangelicals latched onto. Jim wanted to distinguish between what he called first-order issues in theology and other matters that may be important in their own right but shouldn't be elevated to a test of fellowship. A particular exegesis of a passage or a certain view of Bible prophecy, something like that, which could you know, really take hold in evangelicalism in a subculture and become a defining characteristic. Jim always wanted to appeal what we've come to call in more recent decades the great tradition which certainly includes the Reformation and the Puritans that he loved so much, but also goes back to the early church and the great leaders of the, of the ages. He was appealing to that consensual tradition, as another friend of ours, Tom Oden, would often say. The consensual tradition of the early church, the patristic, the, the medieval world, that constituted some of the first order dimension of the Christian faith. I want to go back to when we alluded to some of the controversies that happen over his arguments around inerrancy. Who were the different constituencies that were frustrated or angered or opposed some of Packer's theology here? In England, in particular, we've already referred to the book that was written against which he wrote Fundamentalism and the Word of God. That book was written by a somewhat liberal Anglo-Catholic, and the person they were attacking actually was Billy Graham and his first great crusade. It was it was an anti-Billy Graham treatise, you might say. And Packer rose to the defense of Graham, which is one reason, I think, always in the, the background, why they were such close allies and comrades through the years. But Packer's view of inerrancy became itself controversial within evangelicalism, as inerrancy itself became a fighting word through the work of Harold Lenzel and others later on, through developments at places like Fuller Seminary, which kind of moved away from the word inerrancy anyway at a certain point point in its history. This became an internal fight, and this led up to you know, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which Packer was a part of, though he was not a leader of, but he did sign that statement from 1979. And it continued. It seems to me that it has a little less white heat today than it did, say, 20 or 30 years ago. I'm a Southern Baptist by denomination, and there was a time when that was almost the defining issue within the Southern Baptist Convention. And Packer, in fact, spoke at an inerrancy conference for the Southern Baptists at one time to try to bring some clarity to that fight. So that's a term that kind of takes on a life of his own, in my view, somewhat moves away from what Ted was saying earlier, the centrality of Scripture as the very Word of God. And become somewhat lost in marginal minutiae. At least it, that's a tendency that can happen. 
Does the fact that this may not have the same, you know, heat that you had mentioned several decades ago, does that mean that Packer was largely successful in many ways in bringing people around to this belief? I think so. You know, Carl Henry is the one who I think coined the phrase that I've heard Packer repeat that inerrancy is a test of evangelical consistency, not of evangelical identity. He didn't want to get lost in the minutiae of arguing these small points, but he never, ever wanted to back away from the fact that the Bible is the very word of God, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and that the Bible speaks truly when it touches on issues of history and facticity. We can trust it. We can believe it. It's not a science book, but when it touches his own areas of reality, it speaks truly and not falsely. He never wanted to back away from that central thought and to do it in a way that would draw more people in to a confidence in Scripture. Another thing about Packer, though he was deeply, almost intrinsically committed to the notion of truth, he also very much understood that the Bible was a living book. It was a book that shaped our spirituality and our life. The, the scriptures use the language of eating the Bible. Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the Old Testament prophets, they took the word of God and they digested it. And so this was a part of Packer too, that, that the Bible is to be nourishment. It's a feast that we can come and share the bounty of God's table. And he wanted to keep that front and center in the life of the church. The, the liturgical use of the Bible, whether you go to a liturgical church or not, that is one that follows a particular pattern of prayer or not, that the scripture and worship should be uplifting to the people of God and glorifying to God himself in the way we recite it and quote it and memorize it and sing it in our, in our liturgy and in in our life. That part of the Bible as the living, breathing Word of God was central to Packer's vision. Help me understand some of this, because Packer clearly, in reading him and reading some of his books and reading his articles, he's clearly a man who was passionate about you know, as you said, those that first order things like the core issues, and he kept calling people back to those core issues. One example: we have these sheets that we would send out. We we sent these out for every issue of Christianity Today for you know at least as long as long as the twenty five years that, that I was here, and I guess most of those probably you know was it twenty of them. You know, Packer was an executive editor, one of these editor, senior editors, whatever, and we asked him to comment on every article in, in the magazine. And the number of times where I would get, a, there would be a comment back that would say something like, all very interesting, but where is Jesus? And he, he double underlined Jesus in question mark. Boy, was full of positive comments as well. There were many articles that he loved, but the, the ones that you would find most bracing, I, I was in the news department. He did not have a great love for news, but that's fine. Setting that aside, a lot of the wisdom pieces, he was very eager to be like, if Jesus doesn't make a difference to this conversation, then it makes no sense for CT to give it a whole lot of attention. And I just found that to be, I still, I, I still think of that every time I go through an article for CT. You know, he wanted CT to be an agent. He saw it as an agent of spiritual formation, the lives of the readers, not, not just information, but formation. And so the centrality of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, of the Christian faith, that's central to what he was about. At the same time, I'm wondering, so he obviously clearly was passionate about, you know, Reformed theology. He was someone who was much more apt to kind of quote kind of the Puritans. He could quote Calvin at great length, I'm sure. Uh, but he was probably much more apt to quote from John Owen or someone like that, for example. And I'm wondering, not knowing some of, some of the history, how much was Packer like 
proto the you know kind of reformed resurgence how much is he responsible for the love of kind of reformed theology in evangelicalism and how much of that just has always been a strong stream did he i'm trying to figure out there's knowing god which is you know you can see the reformed theology in there but it's it's pretty basic but at the same time i know packer had a great love for puritan and reformed theology in, in some of its specificities I think he's the most important figure in the resurgence of Reformed theology among evangelicals in our recent history. Now, you can think of other figures, of course, people like uh, R.C. Sproul, John John Piper, many others. I don't want to take anything away from their influence, but it was Packer really who initiated that movement in a lot of ways. And this is rooted in his deep Christian concern. One of the very first books he published, not so well known anymore that he did this, it was a translation of Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will. He he did it with with a fellow... Anglican, and it was an amazing, he wrote an introduction to it that's still very well worth reading. So he was deeply rooted in an Augustinian, reformational, even Lutheran understanding of human incapacity and the absolute urgent need for divine grace. This transferred into his own work at Oxford. He did his doctoral dissertation on Richard Baxter, somewhat later Puritan, and actually was critical of Baxter because he thought Baxter leaned a little bit too much toward Arminianism. And yet he loved Baxter and, and, and promoted his, his spirituality. The Puritans became so important to Packer because they were exponents of Christian living, Christian life and growth and edification. That's why John Owen was so very important to him, another Puritan that he often referred to. We've talked about fundamentalism and the Word of God, one of his very important, almost a pivotal early books. Another one I would say right up there, maybe even a little more influential, is Evangelism and the Sovereign of God. It came out about the same time as Fundamentalism and the Word of God, about the same size, not a big book, but a deep, provocative book. And his thesis was, and it was often said that if you're a so, so-called Calvinist, if you believe in Reformed theology, if the doctrine of election is so central to your understanding of salvation, then why tell the gospel to anybody? God will save those he wants to save, and you don't have anything to do about it. Just sit on your hands and look at it happen. Well, Packer thought that was blasphemous. He believed that evangelism was a central mandate, the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and that this was undergirded by, not undermined by, the sovereignty of God, that it was God the Holy Spirit who was convicting human beings of sin, drawing them to Christ, and leading them across the threshold of repentance. So this was deeply woven into the texture of his theology and soul, and the later works he did, I can think of uh, several others in which he gives expositions of the Puritans, not only Baxter, but many others. His book published in North America as a quest for godliness is a good example of his writings in that area. People began to read Packer. They read Knowing God, and you're right. He doesn't just wave all five flags every chapter in Knowing God. And he would say, if you ask him, why weren't you doing that? He said, well, I don't have to. I'm giving an exposition of Holy Scripture. (laughs) That's what you find in the Bible. There was pushback to this, and he later developed, I would say, a much friendlier and softer kind of position toward an evangelical Anglicanism of the kind, for example, you see at a place like Asbury Theological Seminary. But he was clearly wary of tendencies that pulled away from the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the purpose of salvation in the work of Christ on the cross. I'm curious, Timothy, as we're we're talking all about this, I want to circle back a little bit to understanding his relationship with Christianity today some. Ted had mentioned that Packer wrote very, very early on in C.T.'s history for the publication. What did his relationship look like with C.T. over the years? 
Well, you know, when I became involved with CT, it was many years after Jim had begun to write for CT. He was kind of, I would say, I don't mean this in any kind of a demeaning way, but an utterly respectful way, a grandfatherly figure, not only in terms of his person, but also his, his shaping influence. He had lived through a lot of controversies. He had a, a deep bank of memory. And I remember we would be sitting around the tables, Ted, and you were there maybe for some of those occasions, and we would get into a little bit of a tiffle or a tussle or what, what do we mean by that? And, and Jim would be able to pull out of his memory an event, a controversy, a personality, a discussion that had happened 10, 15 years ago and bring it to that very moment. And it was often quite clarifying. You know, Jim had an interesting way of talking. He was quiet for a good bit of the time when the discussion was going. This was also true at ECT, where I had a lot of conversations with him. He would take it in. He would listen well. He was a great listener, as well as a wonderful interlocutor. But then when he spoke up, it's like E.F. Hutton. is That's Packer talking. We better be quiet and hear what he says. And he would often speak, let me just say, sheer wisdom into that moment. Even when there wasn't always unanimity, people could see where he was coming from and what he meant. And so I would say his role at CT was was a mentor to the whole enterprise, to all of the editors, certainly to people like Tom Oden and me and others that worked with him closely in those days, that we respected him and looked to him as someone who was a pioneer in the very thing that we were giving our lives to. It's funny when you mentioned that. That hits the you know, some of that basics, but also that long memory. You know, one of these things, we'd often have these lunches and he'd be asked to kind of help us think through some theological doctrine or some some issue going on. And, and he would have a this kind of almost, he would kind of start speaking and it was almost like a complete encyclopedia entry, kind of giving an overview of this doctrine from a very wise perspective. But it all made so much sense that sometimes you would stop and you'd say, the nice thing about having a table of journalists around is you know, people aren't afraid to speak up and say, the so what question and say like this is all very good but we we're trying to edit a current issues magazine here and and while that's a great doctrine kind of hard to see what's kind of current issues about it and packer then could go and speak very clearly about like well you know <laughs> historically here's five times in which we have really had to argue about this and here within my lifetime on you know four different committees i've had to sit on are times in which we've had to you know arm wrestle over this thing. In one sense, he was able to articulate these doctrines in such a simple and biblical way that you would think, well, how could anyone think otherwise? And in other times, he could also say, and he was charitable. He was the kind of person who could very, who did not caricature his his opponent's beliefs. He could actually just articulate an opponent's beliefs back to them in a way that they would say, yeah, that's what I believe. And they would say, well, here's here's why you're wrong based on scripture. But he was, yeah, he was he was a very charitable, but also he, he always let you know where he stood. Another example jumps to mind from my experience. He would entertain almost any question. So there was a, a period where we were we were having these kinds of, called them under discussion. We still do it, where we'll ask a lot of people, you know, kind of, what do you think about this? There was a number of times when he would, I think one of the ones that I remember was we were asking about New Year's resolutions. Like, do you do New, Year, New Year's resolutions? And if so, you know, what do you what do you do? This I, this might have been it, or it might have been a different question. And, and he answered the question well and beautifully. And, and then he sent a, a personal note. He said, however, I I do find this question rather silly. <laughs> you know, we're like, okay, you know, that, that's that's worth considering. That you know, he's like, I'm not sure that you're, I'm not sure that you're forming people's understandings of the world through this question. We're like, all right, you know, I'm telling these stories. He was not at all a curmudgeon. I mean, this was a very joyful. The the, the dinners that we would have with him were full of laughter. I mean, he would just his face, he his eyes would just squint up, and he would just sit there and shake laughter most of the time. And they, he was a 
very funny guy. He had a great sense of humor. He had an irrepressible smile. And while we're talking about his temperament, I would say I never saw him got mad. Now, he got frustrated on occasion, I think partly by the lesser mortals with whom he was working. He had a temperament about him. I think he could see where the other person was coming from. And he knew how to listen well, as well as to speak clearly. And that made him a great teacher as well as a great interlocutor. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But there all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You know, in all of these tributes and commentaries that have gone out, in fact, even if you read the two biographies of him that have been published, there's not a lot on his family life. And I, I was wondering, you're someone who knew him. I, I mean, I, I remember a number of conversations where he referenced his wife, but I, I never had a chance to meet her. What was Jim like as a family man? Well, I met his wife. She was a wonderful, is a wonderful lady. Did not travel with him. I think she saw her primary role in that marriage was to be an anchor for Jim and his work, entirely supportive of him in every way. If they had marital problems, I never got a wind of it. I don't know anyone else who did. He loved his family. He was devoted to them, but also understood that he had a wider ministry. In some ways, in that regard, like a Billy Graham who had children, and many times it was Ruth Graham who ended up caring for them and keeping the home fires burning while Billy was running here, there, and everywhere. And they talked about that, how important that unusual relationship was. I think Jim Packer maybe had something similar, but he loved his wife dearly. And I remember many times our talking about her and the important... He met her at a a church social in in when when he was quite young. And uh, we gave a conference on Packer at Beeson Divinity School on his 80th birthday, something that Alistair McGrath and I had wanted to do for a long time. We finally got him to agree to let us do it. And it was published as a book called J.I. Packer and the Evangelical Future. And in there, he talks a little bit more about his family and about Kid, his wife, and some of their relationship. Ted, that was an interesting question to bring that up too, because I noticed that wasn't really gone into a lot of depth in his biography. So I I was curious about that 
Timothy, let's go back to some of these other really defining stances that Packer took in his ministry. Maybe we can start with how he approached women's ordination and women leadership in the church. I would characterize Jim's view on that as traditionalist. He was an Anglican, evangelical, and came from a a church culture which did not support women-ordained ministry. I remember one time we published an article at CT called, which he wrote called Why We Should Not Ordain Women as Presbyters. That was one of the most volatile articles I think we ever (laughs) We may still be getting letters about that that article 20, 30 years later, but yes, yeah. Well, I published an article on the same subject called Beyond the Gender Wars. Yeah, I remember. (laughs) I didn't come down very, very strongly on one side or the other. But having said that about Jim's view, which which, which is really a view about church polity, as he would express it, and how he understood what the scriptures taught about that, in his personal relationship with women, in his support of younger women scholars, I think Jim was absolutely supportive and encouraging in every way. And I know a number of younger uh, female scholars who worked with him and who just held him in the highest esteem. And that would be my impression of him in our discussions as well. I often am curious about the ways that hardship and suffering shape a particular person. Can you say a little bit about how that marked Packer's life? One of his favorite words to kind of talk about the Christian life and the struggles we have is weakness. And he applied that to himself. You know, his life was shaped in a decisive way as a young boy when he was hit by a bread truck. And this left a very visible mark on his head, which he bore till the day he died. And so he knew suffering, even as a young person. In his own life, he had times of bouts of disease and disorder and weakness. And I think that did shape him in a particular way. I remember him giving a wonderful exposition once of Paul's discussion with the Corinthians that in the midst of our weakness, we are made strong by Christ. The fact that we are to, we are wounded healers ourselves. And through those wounds, God speaks to others. That was very much a part of who Jim was, and he understood it. He took the fall very seriously. And whether you were hit by a bread truck or not, you're going to have suffering in your life. And you need to realize that God is with you in the midst of that, and that he shows us compassion, which after all means, doesn't it literally a suffering in the midst of and with someone else? And Jesus is a compassionate Savior in that sense. Packer knew that. You know where it came out, I think, as much as anywhere else? In his theology, yes, in some of his books, for sure, but in his prayers, Love to hear Jim Packer pray. He prayed with a quietness. He prayed with a certainty, a serenity that's hard to describe and is not possible to imitate. And I think that was born in the depths of his own struggles, his own weakness, his own suffering, and his own pain. He had a lot of it in his life. And as he grew older and weaker, lost his eyesight, was not able to travel anymore, was not able to do a lot of the things he had spent most of his lifetime doing, he came to see the hand of God in this as well, as an entrance of him into a better and happier place in eternity. When you guys worked on Christianity Today, you guys had these editorial meetings, you know, executive editor meetings sometimes, and just kind of talked things through. I'm just curious about like what what were some of those meetings like? Like what were the passions there, and and what were some of the what were some of the concerns? One of the reasons I'm curious about that is you know as I said, looking back at this. 1958 article that he wrote where he kind of plays out his vision for evangelicalism in, in many ways. Uh, in many ways, it, it is perhaps there's the editing hand of Carl Henry here, but I, I, I doubt that. My factor was forceful enough that I, I'm sure that he, he probably wouldn't have allowed for that, that kind of shenanigans or, or we would have heard about it. But there's a nice dovetailing here between his vision for evangelicalism in, in Britain and a lot of the 
things that Carl Henry had written about the promise of, of evangelicalism in America. But what's great about this Packer article is he talks about the temptations. And one of them that he talks about is what he calls the undenominational mentality in evangelicalism. And I, in some ways, what he means is that the uh, entrepreneurial spirit can kind of get ahead of uh, the Holy Spirit in, in some ways, that uh, there's an attitude that interdenominational work or kind of uh, personal work, uh, celebrity work, can be done faster and that it can, it can leave the church behind. And he has this kind of argument that the reinvigorating of the local church as the aggressive witnessing community is strategic priority number one. You mentioned before, he's, this, uh, he's very much the churchman throughout his life. So he's very involved in, you know, even as he moves in the, to Canada, becomes a, a priest in a, in a church up, up there. The other thing that he mentions in this 58 article is that evangelicals live in the world as if they were out of the world, showing a sublime insensitiveness the implications of the gospel for social, political, economic, and cultural life, and shirking the responsibility of bearing a constructive Christian witness uh, in these fields. Here again, there is truth in the accusation. (laughs) He also says in this thing, he says, the antinomian tendencies which always hang around pietism have led in, in this case to a deplorable ethical shallowness. Evangelicals today are not noted for personal integrity, public spirit, and passionate love of righteousness in the way that earlier evangelicals were. Man, when I read that, I'm like, what What year did he write this again? He is dead on the mark about some of the temptations towards celebrityism, towards the disregarding of the, of the church as a primary vehicle for God's work in the world. And then also this idea of the temptation to separate out the gospel from the, the implications uh, of the gospel and to say, yes, we need to preach the gospel. We also need to preach the implications of the gospel for, for all of these areas of life. I'm curious about how much that was front and center. Some of those concerns were front and center in his, like, I want Christianity today to be more front and center on these issues, or whether he was a little bit more like, let's let's keep hitting some of these fundamental doctrines, like doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of justification, you know, any, any of these things. Where were his passions in some of those meetings? He would reject the su- suggestion that there was a, any kind of dichotomy uh, between those two. The doctrines themselves imply life. And, uh, you know, Carl Henry published in 1947, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. And in some ways, Packer was, though they were very different figures in lots of ways, very much in sync with Carl Henry in being concerned to wage a campaign against separatism. They both were, were strongly opposed to separatism, which had its British as well as American expression in those days. And Packer wanted the church to be engaged because he believed the gospel called for it. And if we take the doctrine of God seriously, and if there's one central theme in Packer's teaching and preaching, it is God. As he would say, a full-sized God is what is missing in our theology, what is missing in our church life. And he wanted us to return to that. And that itself implies a strong commitment to life, to the issues of life in community and in society. And so in our work at CT, that was always there. You're right. I don't think it ever became an agenda in and of itself because uh, Packer saw it, and I think the rest of us saw it, as an implication from our fundamental commitments, uh, that if we were really true to what we were called to be, of course we're going to be concerned about how this applies to every dimension of life. I never heard him quite say uh, you know, what Kuiper is said, that there's not one square inch of the universe about which Jesus Christ does not say, mine, mine, that belongs to me. But he would resonate with that. And that was one of the things that brought him and Chuck Colson together in close friendship. 
and collaboration. Kuiper, again, was a great uh, person that, that Colson loved to quote. On evangelicalism in America, I don't know if Packer invented this line, but I, I did hear him. I've heard it attributed to him, and I've heard him quote it several times, that American evangelicalism is 3,000 miles wide and one inch deep. What he meant by that is we have so much resources to call on and we ignore them, we downplay them, we go for these other things you were alluding to, the market-drivenness of it, the celebrity character of ministry, and we neglect the, the core of our faith, which is the riches of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. And that's where the great tradition is a corrective to the presentism of contemporary evangelicalism. We've obviously spoken a lot about how Packer contributed to the evangelical movement overall, but I'm curious, Timothy, if you can speak to the specific ways that you saw him contribute to, mold, and influence the Reformed tradition. For one thing, I think the Reformed tradition, of course, covers a multitude of sins, but Packer did not hesitate to own that tradition as his own and to flesh it out in terms of the great exemplars. He called people back to a figure like John Calvin, back to some of the great Puritans who meant so much to him. And he felt that they're not just to be old-fashioned or anachronistic, but that, that there was a richness and a texture to that thought that we needed to reclaim for ourselves in order precisely to escape this shallowness that he's warning against. And I think that's had a great impact in, in many ways. We need more, not less, of Packer in the reform movement today. And I'm glad he's still being read and still younger reform people are influenced by him in a great way. Knowing God is still a best-selling book. I hope it will be uh, 60 years from now because it, it has that timeless quality about it. It's substantive. It's, it's not simply ephemeral. It doesn't just tickle the ears, but it reaches down into the heart. And that's much of what Packer was about. So he's been a good flu influence on the reform movement. Now, one of the things we've not talked about on, on this podcast, but I think we have to at least mention it, and that is his reaching out to Roman Catholics. The work that he and I were involved with, along with Chuck Colson and, and a number of others, Tom Oden, evangelicals and Catholics together is the most notable expression of that, which had its own controversy, let us say, not forget. And Jim was very much caught up in that. But he did that not as a way of trying to hedge his bets or to compromise a theology as he was accused of doing, but really motivated by the gospel, a desire to reach out in the name of Jesus Christ, to take seriously the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, that all of his disciples would be one as he and the Father is one so that the world might believe there was an evangelistic motive behind that. And I think that's one of the legacies that Jim Packer gives to us all today, that we are to be followers of Jesus and to seek the unity of God's people. I think Packer recognized that as important as the Protestant Reformation was and is for evangelicals, the issues that were faced in the 16th century are not exactly the same as we face today. The Catholic Church is not exactly the same as it was even when Christians Christianity today began in 1956. And so we have to use wisdom as we think about how to advance Christian unity without compromise, without accommodation. That's what he was for. He was for an ecumenism of conviction, not an ecumenism of accommodation. And in the many, many hours that I spent in dialogue with him and Roman Catholics, that's the thing that came across more and more. And people would turn to him and look to him, regardless of whether they were Protestant or Catholic, because of what he represented in terms of his spiritual center and his commitment to Jesus Christ. Where do you see the legacy and influence of Packer today, Timothy? Do you see it, for instance, in any particular Christian leaders or in another movement that has started in the church? 
Well, one of the questions I was thinking about in, in thinking about this conversation we were going to have about Jim Packer is uh, where is the next Jim Packer? You know, we say that all the time. I remember we used to sit on the table at, at CT and talk about who's the next Billy Graham. I don't quite remember, that is to say, but I've read about how in 1899, uh, people were saying that about D.L. Moody. When, when Moody died, where's the next Moody? Who's going to hold his brother? So there is no next J.I. Packer. There, there's no one who can fill his shoes. He was unique. He was uniquely gifted and a great gift of God to the whole church. But he did leave us a legacy. And that legacy is something that we can all own in our own particular way. And we've talked about a lot of it. It was the core. He didn't like the word center. And I don't like it either because it's inherently relativistic. You pull the rope one way, you're jerked to the right. Another way, you're jerked to the left. Center is somewhere queasily in the middle. Uh, he didn't like that. He liked the word core, which of course is the Latin word for heart. And that is exactly what the Christian faith is aiming for, the heart of the gospel. Sometime when you don't have anything else to do, take your Bible down and read Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Underscore every time the word heart is there. It's a very important word. And this is what Packer was after. He wanted our heart to be in sync with the heart of Jesus and with the heart of the gospel. And I think that's one of the, the big issues. The other one we've talked about, too, was church. He was against a kind of Lone Ranger Christianity. And he remained an Anglican even with all of the difficulties and with his own expulsion from his particular branch of Anglicanism in Canada at one point. He remained deeply committed to the Anglican way because people believe that it was a gospel way, and it's where God had placed him to bear witness. I, I sort of feel that uh, about my own very belabored Baptist movement, too. To be interdenominational does not mean to be anti-denominational. It means to claim a part of the family of faith where God has put you, deepen it, improve it, reform it, enrich it, but don't abandon it. I think that would be Packer's wisdom. I love that idea about core, Timothy, and I'm glad that you brought that up as it's not really defined by left or right in those ways. So thank you for sharing all of that. For people who have feedback for us or perhaps you have a actual thought about Packer and how his work in and out of CT has influenced you, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show when we get to hear from all of our listeners who listen to this show. We call it Slow to Speak. Ted, I'm going to let you read our first letter. Right on. I'm going to read both letters, Morgan, because that's just how I feel like rolling today. Our first letter is from John Nodestain. Apologize if that is not the way you pronounce your last name, but uh, we loved your letter, so I will read it. I have been a long-time CT subscriber and have listened to Quick to Listen since it started. John, that's a long time. So I'm, I'm not going to fact-check you on that, but that's, that's awesome. Going to lots of permutations over the years. Well, anyway, John continues, I appreciate your broad evangelical approach to both your articles and your podcasts. It has made me think about issues differently and has made me able to see how other Christians view issues. Keep up the good work. We don't usually give a midrash to these letters, but you know, I'm feeling all warm and fuzzy by this guy's letter. And so I'm just, I'm happy. Here's now we get to the meat of John Nodestein has to write. I wanted to make sure we got all his praise. I'm finally catching up on my podcast and was listening to your June 3rd episode, Why White Evangelicals Love Police More Than Their Neighbors. 
one thing that struck me especially was the Franklin Graham quote about obedience to those in authority over us. Well, I've known this for quite a while. It has been my experience that evangelicals say this when their preferred political party is in power. I've never heard any evangelical use that quote when the party they dislike is making the laws. But again, thank you for making this a great podcast. Thank you, John, for your for your letter. Our second letter is from Mark Rutz. I wanted to thank you and Ted. This was clearly written to you, Morgan. That's nice. But, you know, he wanted to thank us both, just so you know. What did you and Ted? I said you that and is... Ted. That's me me twice. I know. That's true. Well, I know what I'm saying. Like, that is that is clear that it was. That's, not a, that's true. That's true. For a timely discussion on the podcast this week, a podcast on how to discuss, work through, and maintain relationships amid disagreements is sorely needed in this polarizing age. Yes, this was specifically regarding doctrine, where too often the Christian church has presented a very poor example to the wider public. However, the concepts and techniques are certainly applicable to a broader range of issues. I pray that all of us can better emulate Christ and choose relationship over division. Thank you both for these letters, whether you're writing about the podcast, you're writing about CT articles, writing about our work in general. We read, reflect, and share all these letters, so please keep it up. You can email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com podcasts with a with an s now's the time of the show that we call precious moments where we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy ted i'm excited for you to go let's hear it <laughs> well you know this is the part of the show that I usually give a board game update, and I will do that again this week. I've gotten some lovely Twitter messages over the last couple of weeks, people asking for board gaming advice. Go ahead, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Ted Olson, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N. I'm happy to recommend board games to you. One that I played this last week that I really enjoyed is, I might have mentioned it before, Wingspan. Uh, Morgan, I think I've mentioned, I, I've gotten yeah, into we bird... We played it at work. We played it at work. Yeah, you know, I've gotten into bird watching the last couple of years. Being into bird watching has been really handy during this COVID period. I've got some bird feeders outside my window. And in fact, I've been watching a few birds while we've been recording this podcast. It's just fantastic. Wingspan is, you know, very bird watching oriented, collecting birds. Those birds kind of do different things that make your board more powerful and you can get more points. But just a very kind of relaxy game. For my birthday, my son gave me upgraded components. Instead of using little cardboard circles with pictures of worms on them, you have like actual, you know, little wooden worms and little wooden berries and little worm. Just what everyone wants, wooden, little wooden worms. Okay. Every, hey, if you got a, you know board game with worms, you know, upgraded components. That's the way to go. So anyway, Wingspan has given me much joy. After the sun goes down, I can still enjoy my birds. Morgan, how about you? You've been out of town. I assume that gave you, I hope that gave you some joy. Yeah, I probably could like use a number of things that happen on this trip as their own moments of joy, but I want to give a shout out to my extended family that I stayed with. Ted, I hadn't seen this extended family in more than two decades. Wow. A very long time. I mean, I'm getting old, but not that old. So it's basically, I'd seen them when I was a tiny little kid. And they were so hospitable. I think they may be new podcast listeners, which is why I wanted to give them a shout out here, yes. part of it. But the hospitality that I was shown through basically a stranger, let's be honest, <laughs> was pretty unreal. So one of my cousins lent me camping stuff in his car, which was 
amazing because I ended up driving. I was over in Washington State and visited some of the parks on that side of the world. Then I had some other cousins who took us around on their boat and so forth. So I just really felt loved and special, not only just because of these things, but also through the good conversations that I was able to have with folks. And that was really awesome. So shout out to them. And maybe I'll talk about this more last week, but also Glacier National Park, I think is probably the most beautiful part of the U.S. that I've been to. So isn't it? I knew you'd love it. I miss it so much. I, I'm, I'm desperate to go back. So I'm kind of a sucker for anything to do with water. And because of all the snowpacks and glaciers and so forth, when you get there during the summer, all of it's slowly, slowly, slowly melting. And so you just have waterfalls everywhere that you look. And that is totally my jam. I loved it. (laughs) I highly recommend people don't go there, though, so that it's (laughs) not too trafficked for (laughs) the rest of us. Stay off of going to the Sun Road. Sure. You kept your social distance, I'm sure. For those who are concerned about your health, Morgan, you should be sure. And others' health. Sure people that you're, yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Timothy, over to you. Let me mention something old and something new. What brings joy to my life is my wonderful wife, Denise, who celebrated with me 50 years of marriage this summer. And I'm grateful for her, and she brings great joy into my life. I couldn't call that brand new, 50 years, but we have a grandson. His name is Philo. Philo lives with us, and every night I have the privilege of singing with him, trying to. He does better than I do. Reading the scriptures, saying our prayers together. That brings me great joy to see a smile on his face and the sprigs of a newfound faith leaping up in his heart. Go Way to go, Philo. How old is he, did you say? He'll be three years old on August the 1st. Aw. So how are you guys going to celebrate his birthday? All kinds of ways. Last year we had a fire engine come and sing happy (laughs) birthday to him, so... Wow, we're talking about the garbage truck this year. Well, I'm sure that he will deeply appreciate it. And I also feel like you are going to love it too. All right. So where can people find you outside of this podcast? Hiding. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's what you you can do in retirement. You're like, I'm done. Well, I'm, I'm retired as the dean of Beeson, but I still am a. Re- oh, that's true. Person. Yes, that's right. You're just, you're still you're still going. You're still going, and you have books coming out. So I do. I well, you're just not, you're do. you're staying out of the Twitter fights, is what you're saying. Of course, I don't I don't twit, and um, I'll be teaching this fall, of course, on theology and ethics. So I'll be back in the classroom, which is where I love to be. Oh, that's wonderful! Great. Thank you, Timothy. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. The podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. Udmiya Shola does the transcript, and the music is done by Sweeps. If you would like to give us feedback and let your voice be heard on this podcast, send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And as usual, we don't care if you disagree with us. Just tell us what you think. If you've got J.I. Packer stories, we'd love to hear Yeah, that would be really fun. I think that'd be great. All right. You can also tweet at us. We're at CT Podcast. And again, if you also can feel compelled to leave feedback anywhere else, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show there. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you all next week.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.